You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. Regardless of the color, whether the snow goose is white or blue, uh, they both have reddish color, red, pinkish colored legs, and then a pink bill. What can they teach us? So as this bird's flying, the one in front is taking full resistance of the air, and they're burning a lot of calories, a lot of energy. The ones behind them, how they fly, there's less wind resistance. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. On the sixth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me six geese a laying, five golden rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. Honk, honk, honk. I just had to open with that. Chris, because about two weeks ago, Chris and I seriously spent 20 minutes at least trying to figure out, <laughs> again, being gracious, <laughs> trying to figure out which bird uh, from the 12 Days of Christmas, it's a mm-hmm. classic song here in North America, uh, which bird from that song to cover. And we came up with the goose or geese. Yep. <laughs> and we'll be talking about all about snow geese today. It's going to be a fun episode. And I think we have several Christmas birds. I promise mm-hmm. we will get to partridges. That was mm-hmm. like, that was probably my number two choice. Right. And all of the other ones mentioned the song. And yes, every Christmas you may get to hear me sing a little portion of that song. <laughs> You're I so apologize yeah, in advance. No, was I wasn't warmed up, uh, so I didn't have my guitar with me or my piano to hide be- uh, hide behind. So yeah. acapella's never been a friend. Oh, you're <laughs> way better than me. The, the the our listeners do not want to hear me sing, but that that was actually beautiful. I, lo- I loved hearing uh, you do your warm up and then yeah, go it's belt fun it out. And it, but it's fun. And speaking of snow geese, we needed to start with I needed to start with the vocalizations because Chris, they are one of the most vocal waterfowl out there Mm -hmm. and we opened with the honk but holy macaroni do they do a lot of other calls that we'll talk about when we get to vocalizations and yeah they're a chatty kathy and so i thought (laughs) i just thought it was apropos to to open up with a honk and a little a little bit of my own vocalization Oh yeah, I mean, when they're up at eight thousand feet, like people, they're just when they migrate, they are super loud. They are super loud. So I'm sure I've heard them flying overhead. Just didn't realize, you know, before my my bird loving days, that it was actually a snow goose uh, migrating south for the winter. But yeah, I mean, it. it uh, this is going to be a fun one. I also love. This is our first goose that we've done, and the one I tried to get was the bar headed goose, and the only reason is. Because they fly over the Himalayas. They fly as high as 28,000 feet or 8,000 meters. Like, that's the, one of the highest flying birds in the world. And But just learning about geese, the snow goose, the conservation story about geese and ducks in North America. Yeah, it's going to be a blast. This is going to be a fun podcast. Well, we'll also talk a lot, too, about the epic journey that snow geese make. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not, they don't go over the Himalayas, like you mentioned with the barred goose. But... 
I mean, they travel three to 4,000 miles and they spend over half of the year in these migration routes to and from their uh, wintering areas and their nesting areas. So just a really cool bird, a lot of fun, beautiful, very, very, very gorgeous to look at. Uh, they have different colors that they come into, which was something I learned uh, this week when I was studying snow mm-hmm. geese. So it's going to be a fun pod. Yeah. And I've just, this past weekend, I sent, sent you some photos. I was out with Jesse again and, and we go up to one of the bays here in New Zealand. And you know, I was telling you about the bar-tailed godwit that migrated all the way from Alaska over the Pacific Ocean to New Zealand. So the story of birds, I mean, birds, once you start learning about them, once you start watching them, you just start falling in love. You just fall in love with them. And this one is no exception. Oh, yeah. Their behaviors are so fun. Uh, and and their courtship. And no, birds are awesome. I took a bird biology class many, many moons ago at Michigan State. And I really got to dive in deep to just to figure out how they fly and how they do what they do. And then their vocalizations, communications. It's There's a part of me that wishes we just did birds. I mean, yeah. we have so many to cover. They're <laughs> yeah. just so fun. And I, I always awesome. learn. I learn so much too. Mm-hmm. So Mm-hmm. No, for sure, for sure. It's it's just there's a lot to learn about geese, and just really quickly going into the holiday season, I just wanted to say thank you to our Patreon subscribers. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, you're every week. You know, we we talk about doing the podcast. We have to, and we carve out time during the week uh, to do it. But that helps motivate us. Thank you. You know, we're reaching tens of thousands of listeners all over the world, you know, and so from the bottom of my heart too, to all of our listeners, I just want to wish you happy holidays, happy new year, wherever you are in the world. And thank you for listening. Yes. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for being our inspiration. You're our conservation heroes. You help motivate Chris and I, so we really appreciate it. And if you want to get me a Christmas gift this year, you can head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review and then also maybe some kind words. We really haven't had too many written reviews this past November and December because I know everybody is busy with the holidays. I get it. Uh, But if you do have time while you're sitting around on your phone, each and every positive review can really help Chris and I reach more people. And that is one of our main missions with this podcast. And just really quick too, I just want to, you know, thank you for the nice emails we got this week. Uh, Kathy loved our rabbits episode that we just covered. And then Eben is requesting Puma. So even we Ooh, are, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. We've got so many cats to cover too. So that one is definitely, I, I think maybe like the Florida Panther could be a highlight that we could do here pretty soon. So thank you so much for the emails. Keep them coming. Angie describing the snow goose, what I really, what stood out for me are the two colors. Yes. Differences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the first color is the white snow phase, where it gets its name from, uh, which is just a bright white in color with black wing tips that really aren't noticeable when the bird is on the ground foraging. But when they're in flight, you can really see uh, these black wing tips. And the second color of the snow goose. It's called the blue phase. And in the blue phase, they have gray, bluish colored bodies with black wingtips. The blue color will also have white necks and heads. And sometimes they even have a white underside of their bellies. So they're considered two morphs. So the snow phase or the snow morph and the blue phase or the blue morph. And regardless of the color, whether the snow goose is white or blue, 
Uh, they both have reddish color, red, pinkish colored legs, and then a pink bill. And they have this black grin patch around its bill that makes them look like they're smiling. So when their bill is closed, there's this darling little black line that runs on the inside of their bill towards a corner of their mouth. And they just, they really look like they're grinning. So it is somewhat cartoonish, but in a very darling way, I think, uh, because it just gives them a lot of personality, which if you're familiar, if you've ever worked with or been around ducks or geese in general, they tend to have pretty hilarious personalities. So this grin, this black grin patch really, uh, really is quite suiting for this bird. Yeah, Angie, it is confusing because they call it blue phase or, or white phase, but they don't change color like we just covered last week with the, the snowshoe hair. No, and the yeah. wording is a little tricky, mm-hmm. and that's why I had to do a lot of research. Like, okay, are, are they, you know, are they different species? Are mm-hmm. they are, are they doing this color change when they are in the Arctic? Are they white? And then when they come further south, migrate south, are they blue? And the answer is no. The color that they're born with is the color they have for their entire life. So if, if they're white or in the snow phase, they're white their whole lives. And if mm-hmm. they're considered a blue phase and they're this bluish gray color, uh, then they're that way their whole lives. Uh, there is no, there's no changing. And so with the blue color being partially dominant over the white, if the two blue geese mate, most of their offspring will be blue or dark in color. They might have a few white ones, but most of them are going to be the bluish color. Whereas if two white geese mate, all of their offspring will definitely be all white. Now, if we have a blue goose mate with a white goose, the offspring will mostly be dark and have white bellies. But what researchers are seeing is typically geese will choose to uh, breed with the color that their parents were. And what researchers have seen over the years is these colors are controlled genetically, but when geese are selecting a mate, they'll often prefer uh, to select a mate that resembles their parents. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Now these are sizable birds. It's the body lengths are anywhere from 27 to 32 inches or 70 to 80 centimeters. So, you know, the, the, the body themselves is big and then they weigh anywhere from three and a half to seven pounds or one and a half to three kilograms. So again, birds are very light because they need to fly. But again, these are, these are big birds. And then the wingspan can be up to 55 inches or 140 centimeters. So, you know, that's four to five feet that it's a big bird. This is a big Mm -hmm. bird, beautiful bird. Oh yeah, they are. They're, they're beautiful. Now, snow geese are in North America. Sometimes they do get blown over to Europe. You know, I, I read some some things there where they sometimes seem in the UK. In Scotland. Uh, in Scotland, right. They, mm-hmm. they can get blown over the Atlantic Ocean, but generally are, are North America birds. Now, during the spring and summers, they're in the Arctic. So, hence, getting their name, snow geese. And then they migrate south into... Uh, lower 48 United States, uh, parts of the East coast, of the United States, and even parts of Mexico. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that that's their migration. And we'll talk a little bit about migration later, but 
it, very interesting that they have like they have these migration airways where they they tend to fly certain corridors every year. And that that becomes important when we talk about, you know, how they migrate. Now, snow geese are a keystone species. As we learn about these birds, they're very important. I would have thought like Canadian geese because you find them everywhere. I have Canadian geese here in New Zealand, obviously in North America. When I was in England with Pippa, there's Canadian geese everywhere. <laughs> they're just <laughs> Canadians are everywhere. We love you. We love you. Uh, but they were introduced uh, down here in New Zealand a long time ago. But the snow geese, the, they're critical. They're very important to the Arctic ecosystem uh, up there. Oh, yeah, Chris. They serve as seed dispersers by eating plants in an area. And then, of course, uh, defecating, which we all know about uh, goose poop. Mm, no yeah, they're, <laughs> no they're, fun on the show. No, no, no. Uh, but speaking of goose feces, in moderation, the nutrients that are in goose feces can really help add to soil uh, fertilization and nutrients in the soil. And then on the reverse side is snow geese are preyed upon by Arctic foxes, bald eagles, coyotes. So they uh, they have a really important part in the food chain as a prey item for several species. Yeah, I loved the Arctic fox. That was episode 197. So I wrote that down. <laughs> I just, uh, oh, they're, they're fun. They're fun to cover. So... What I want to talk about today is, is is a good story. Heading into the holidays, I want people to feel good and not worry, you know, about conservation. Feel good about not only are you one of our conservation heroes listening to this podcast, sharing information, but there's a lot going on out there in, in conservation circles and, and geese and ducks in general in North America have a really great conservation success story. And I just want to highlight this a little bit. Today... In 2021 and 2020, there's three times as many geese as there were just 30 years ago. So we're seeing this huge resurgence of a lot of waterfowl. Now, I know we've talked about the reduction in biomass in North America of birds, but that is not waterfowl. And I think we've mentioned this before in some other podcasts that waterfowl have done really well. And and I want to highlight why. Now, one of the reasons is because a lot of these birds, you know, especially with the snow goose, they breed and hatch in the Arctic. So there's less human impacts up there right now. You know, their their habitat is still somewhat pristine and they're not being interfered with. Now, climate change, obviously, in the Arctic is a concern as it is down here near the Antarctic. But they're finding the geese are doing really well with some some changes we're seeing in climate change and that is because there's earlier springs up there so that doesn't bode well for polar bears and walrus and other species but the geese are doing really well that there's more food up there the problem is because they're doing so well and their population is booming they are seeing birds that are skinnier but for now they're surviving fine they, they are a little bit thinner when they do their, their migrations, but they are surviving it and their populations continue to increase. Now, some of this is attributed that during their migration, 
they do stop over and and forage for food and the the central areas of canada and the central united states is just all farmland and so there's a lot of food resources that benefit these geese so the geese are doing very well as they migrate down there's things to eat and then they get down to their wintering grounds and they've also attributed that wildlife biologists today have so much more information, get more accurate population numbers, so they're able to manage them better. Now, one thing I wanted to highlight, and I think Angie and I have mentioned this in a podcast, is how we got here. How did we get here to today where waterfowl are doing so well? And it has to do with, with hunting in North America. And hunters in North America have helped preserve waterfowl in, in collaboration with artists. And the history is in the early 1900s, many, many species of ducks and geese were heading towards extinction. Loss of habitat, overhunting, it, it just, they were on a downward trajectory towards, you know, being gone forever. But in 1934 in the United States, they passed the Duck Stamp Act. And what it is, is hunters that want to hunt duck and geese have to buy a stamp. And these stamps are, it's an actual like postage stamp that, and I haven't seen one. I, you know, maybe I have, I just never realized what it was, but it's beautiful artwork of a species of duck, a species of goose or, or a bunch of them. So that it becomes become somewhat of a collector's item, but this was passed in 1934 and then all of that money generated has gone to preserve waterfowl habitat throughout the United States. Now, in 1934, a duck stamp sold for a dollar. And that's increased where in 2015, it was $25 per stamp. And the postage service in the United States sells these. And then that money is, is sent to preserve this habitat. So the data I had is in 2017, they sold one and a half million stamps. It generated more than $1 billion to preserve about 6 million acres of waterfowl habitat in the United States. Now, what that's also done is, and, and I know in California, in Florida, there, there's many waterways that are protected uh, by the federal government and state governments. It has helped other mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, all these other species have benefited because of this. So it, it, it just shows how something like that, where, you know, hunting can come in and, and really, really contribute. I know Angie and I, we, we haven't really looked a lot into like elk hunting and deer hunting and stuff like that, but I know a lot of that money generated goes to preserving them. Now, just to give you some numbers on how geese have been doing overall, uh, the, the snow geese, they were down to 50,000 birds in the 1960s. The greater snow goose, we'll find out there's two subspecies. Today, there's millions of birds uh, compared to 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Duck numbers have gone way up. Today, they're estimating there's over 41 million breeding ducks. And in 1962, I'm looking at this data, there was only 25 million. And then just looking at specific species, I looked at mallards, there's about 5 million birds in 1965. Today, that's close to nine and a half, 
to almost 10 million birds. So their populations have doubled. So the, the, the Stamp Act has, has definitely had a, a huge impact on conservation of duck and geese. So when you're on the coastal areas, you know, around the United States or traveling and, and you see their protected areas, you can now understand, oh yeah, that's for duck and geese, you know, and a lot of waterfowl. It, it, it's protected areas that uh, the Stamp Act has has helped generate. So I just wanted to give you some some feel good stories. You know, waterfowl in the United States at least are doing well, and it just we'll keep our eyes on it and see how the these geese do through the years. Well, Chris, and just to add a little bit to that, a lot of these geese are doing so well. There's thought that snow geese in certain areas of the Arctic might be doing almost too well. Mm -hmm. And by too well, I mean when they're feeding in the Arctic, when they're nesting. And just like we talk about in this podcast, when there's too much of something, it's also not a good thing. And so with that being said, researchers and government officials are continuing to look at the numbers and seeing, okay, well, how many is too many? And where exactly are they nesting in the Arctic and what are their numbers there? And, and so some researchers are putting goose collars on certain individuals and certain populations of snow geese to basically track them as part of a research project. And of course, these collars are comfortable, but it helps the people studying them understand really quickly which bird it is and all of their history and their information. And the hope is that we'll understand a little bit more about how their populations are growing. And even with legal hunting that's been allowed uh, since 1975 with um, a certain amount, mm -hmm. uh, doesn't seem to really be totally tanking the populations uh, like it did in the early 1900s mm -hmm. when they stopped hunting uh, to let the population rebound. So Chris and I love science and scientific studies. And I think the, the snow goose is an, a great example of how understanding population dynamics and really using the data to drive management decisions and looking at the the whole big picture right not just necessarily one species but the 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 whole habitat and all the other species in the area is really beneficial for all conservation efforts it is and it, conservation is so complex and it it, it it's takes not black and white right no, i mean that's the no. thing it's like uh whether you're pro hunting or not pro hunting or uh it's it's really it's very complex and the more i do this podcast that i mean i always try to keep an open mind but mm. i do like to look at the numbers but the numbers mm. change right you can't just do a study 50 years ago and be yeah. like okay it's static and that's yeah. just how it is. No, it it's changes. like, no, these things are changing and we need it's more research, more care. researchers, more money for research. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so for conservation to help us make the best management decisions. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, yeah, definitely, it's definitely complex. Um, but well, the snow geese are doing great yeah, they're doing <laughs> regardless really great. of what yeah. us humans are doing. So yeah. bless their cute little hearts. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, it takes money. It takes a lot of money to oh, conserve so much these, money. Sure. these animals. And so that's when, you know, you, you find ways to generate money to preserve and protect the species because that, that is what our goal needs to be. We, we need, we need stable populations. And so waterfowl are doing really great, but we know songbirds and other classes of birds in North America are doing awful. So how do we find some of these strategies to help preserve them? 
So that's why, you know, we, we tell these stories each week and, and just keep you in the loop on what's going on out there. Jumping into, this was fun, jumping into their evolutionary history, their, their classification. Again, remember, birds are dinosaurs. We go back to that. Uh, the class, aves, birds, there's about 10,000 species. So we have a lot to cover. And this is our, a, a new order for us. And seriforms. So these are the waterfowl. There's 180 species, and this is where I had fun. There's three families. All right, so the Anatidae is duck, geese, and swans. Okay, that's 170 of those 180 species. Then you have the Anseranatidae, which is the magpie goose. And then the Anhimidae, three species of screamers. So I saw that and I was like, what in the heck is a screamer? I know Jesse would know. So next time I see him, we go birdie and I'm going to ask him about him. Have you seen a screamer, Jesse? Probably not because they're in South America. And the, the three species are the horned screamer, the southern screamer, and the northern screamer. And they get their name from its crazy cry. So I had to go and find this. And I want to play it real quick. <laughs> so that's for our South American listeners. You probably hear that. <laughs> well, yeah, Chris, it actually sounded like me with my children this past <laughs> yeah. weekend when they yes. were misbehaving. I was the northern screamer, and then I became the southern screamer, yeah, and then yeah. I got then I was the was horned screamer. Yeah, 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 <laughs> so yeah, yeah all yeah, of them, yeah. all of them, all three of them. Yeah, uh, it's fun, fun uh, bird. I just kind of went down that rabbit hole for a little while. All right, getting back to snow geese, the there's 43 genera in in it today. So the the swans and geese make up 25 to 30 of those species. You have true swans, then the gray geese and white geese, which is in the genus Anser, is where we find the snow goose, and then you have the Branta, which are the black geese. And again, there's still some debate on on where some other species of geese uh, belong, but the snow goose is. Scientific name is Anser carolicens. I probably butchered that as usual, uh, but that's their scientific name. Now, like we said, there are two subspecies. There is the lesser snow goose and then the greater snow goose. And the greater one's just a little bit bigger than the, the lesser one. And then they kind of breed in different areas, uh, things like that. So there are two different subspecies. Now, birds, again, emerged 160 million years ago. We had bird-like dinosaurs, and then we had the mass extinction around 66 million years ago. And that's where we find the earliest uh, geese-like or ancestor, which was Vega vididae, which was actually carnivorous. So it was like a little dinosaur. And that that's the one that's related to duck and geese. Now, for geese... Again, some of these birds, are it's hard to find good fossils. The oldest goose fossil we have is about 12 million years ago. So we don't know much more uh, past that. Uh, it was found in Italy. Now, really quickly on geese, they were first domesticated about 5,000 years ago in Greece because we know we have domestic uh, goose species. And, and then also somewhere around then, southern China. 
they they were almost simultaneously domesticating geese around that time. And they used them for security and obviously food resources, things like that. Now, Chris, I'm not sure if the domesticated Muscovy duck was bred to help protect intruders or exactly what they were bred for. However, I do have a tiny scar on my leg from um, Huey and Louie, were two Muscovy ducks that I worked with years ago at the zoo. And they just were, they were like some of the more dangerous animals that I worked with. They, they, when they were in, when they were in a mood and you were in their habitat, like, or if I was like changing out the the water for their pond, they would swim in. I mean, they were not shy. They, they would come after you, and I would always tease my coworkers <laughs> if, well, if you know, if Huey and Louie take me down, um, can you please just uh, throw me in? Can you put me in a different enclosure so people don't have to know that I, you know, died, died by, by Muscovy duck? Honestly, some of my my more impactful injuries from my zookeeping years were those darn Muscovy ducks, and then a rooster. I definitely had a rooster. <laughs> yes, incident. I remember that. Yeah, I remember a that. Mama pig incident. So. <laughs> It's the farm animals. Totally. Uh, I think probably because that's the thing is like you do go in with them and you assume that they're safe safe where whenever I'm working with, you know, um, a zebra or a more dangerous hoofstock Mm. animal, I was on high alert the whole time Mm. and we Mm. weren't going in with them. We were doing protective contact for their training and stuff like that. So talkins and stuff. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the talkins, we... We yeah. never. What you talking about? We never. We never went in with those guys. We <laughs> yeah, did a lot never. Of, we never. did a lot of cool like hoof trims yeah. and in- and medical injection training and lots of cool stuff with them. But yeah, never in with them. And so maybe that's the reason why. But I have a lot of well, stories about the farm animals and injuries. if you would have <laughs> met this thing around six to nine million years ago, maybe it would have. You would have. It would have killed you. <laughs> so, <laughs> Tell me this, more. This was the giant goose. Can you guess where we've been focused on this area lately with some crazy animals? South America? No, it's an island in the Mediterranean. Remember, we've seen some like giganticism, and we've talked a couple of species there lately, some of these crazy ones. Um, we just had the big didn't we do the rabbit? That's fine. I just told you, Mediterranean. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was too busy singing Jeopardy yeah. lyrics. Yeah. So this was the giant goose, the largest goose ever. It was Garganerus balmani. It weighed 50 pounds it, oh. or 22 kilograms, stood about one and a half meters or five feet. Okay. And uh, was, almost as tall as me. Yes. Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> it was flightless and probably would have caused some injuries if we were alive back then. So there you yeah. go. There was a giant goose that stood about five feet tall. I love so, it. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. love these facts. All right. Uh, some more about snow geese. It lived to be about 15 years old, but the, the oldest known one I found uh, that Cornell, again, love the, the bird apps coming out of their eBird. Uh, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, they, they have documented that there was a snow goose that was about 27 and a half years old. So, but generally, you know, the, the, again, the wild's tough. It's tough mm-hmm. living out there and they don't live about 15. Uh, they fly about 50 miles per hour or 80 kilometers per hour. Very good swimmers. I mean, anybody that's watched goose, I sitting there with Pip, we'd watch the gray lag goose, geese, uh, and their, their goslings, and then the Canadians, and then the swans. So very good swimmers. And like I said earlier, when they do migrate, they, they get up to about 8,000 feet or 2,500 meters. Now, Angie, I just, you know, one of the things that 
amazed me when we were talking about geese. And again, I think about that bar-headed goose was how they do it. One thing I looked up was the V formation. And I don't know if we've mentioned this in a podcast before or not, but, but why they fly in a V. And basically it, it, it comes down to energy and, and both of us doing research in animal nutrition. We understand the purpose of, of energy and how energy dictates everything basically. So the way the V formation is set, it's each bird behind flies a little bit slightly above. So it, it it's, you know, when you fly through air, I mean, you gotta think about it. We live in like really, I almost think an ocean of gases, right? So whenever we wave our arms or stick your arm out the car while it's going, you can feel the resistance. So as this bird's flying, the one in front is taking full resistance of the air and they're burning a lot of calories, a lot of energy. The ones behind them, how they fly, there's less wind resistance. So the one in front is leading, burning the most calories. They will get tired and they will fall back into formation. And then another one will take the front and then fly for a while and then burn. And when it gets tired, it will fall back and another one will go to the front. So that is one of the reasons that that's what will, that is the major reason why they fly in a V formation. And then it's also, you know, they're, they're flying in a group and safety in numbers, things like that. Now, what I also looked up was, okay, because it always fascinates me, especially when you, you talked about like sea turtles and how they navigate and what they believe with geese and migrating waterfowl is they use landmarks. So like the snow geese, they're using these travel corridors and they tend to go down the same ones because they use certain landmarks, rivers, you know, mountains, coastlines, things like that. They also believe that the where the sun is and the stars, they also can do that. And they do believe geese have a compass in their head, which can help tell them north and south. They can detect the Earth's magnetic field. It's so cool. Like a sixth sense, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, you talked about it with the, the sea turtles. That, that mm-hmm. was a whole thing on that. Then reading this a little bit more, the older geese will teach the younger geese the corridors, the flight corridors. And so the younger geese will, will follow the older geese and know where to go. And it, it made me think of this movie fly away home. And I haven't seen it. I just remember hearing the story, but fly away home tells the, the story of Bill Lishman who was training Canadian geese, how to migrate. So the younger geese do not know they have to learn. So he used his ultralight aircraft to fly with them and show them the route, and then they learned. So really cool stuff when you think about it. And, and, and it goes back oh, yeah. to well, all the birds it, we've covered. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that the young ones don't, they're never going to be in the front of the V formation because they need to first learn where they're going and learn the landmarks and how to use their onboard navigation system. So really just really fascinating uh, from a behavioral point of view. Now let's talk a little bit more about their mig- migration route. Basically, what ends up happening is around March or so, the weather starts warming up, the days are getting a little bit longer, and that's when they will leave their wintering grounds and start flying north towards the Arctic. They rest a lot uh, between the first week of April and towards the end of May, 
and they're feeding a lot, uh, getting ready for the long flight, also getting uh, building up nutrients for the breeding season and for the nesting that's coming up. So fattening up, if you will. And then they fly north into the Arctic and they hang out there. Uh, and that's where they court, breed, make their nest and raise their young. Mm-hmm. And I'll talk a lot more about that when we get to breeding behavior. But they hang out in the Arctic uh, till usually September, October, depending on how far north they went and may even reach into November. And then around that September, October, November timeframe, they uh, start their descent south, uh, heading to wherever they're going to land. And that could be, as Chris mentioned, north, central, eastern coast of the United States, the southern, central, even into Mexico a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then there's definitely distributions of snow geese uh, that will hang out in patches of west of the Rockies. I can't wait to see them. I'm like, <laughs> Jesse's turned me in such a bird nerd. I get so excited when I discover a new species. I've seen like, I've, I've found like 62 species so far in New Zealand uh, once I started really keeping track. That's awesome. I didn't realize yeah. your count was that high. Oh God, Jesse's like 150. There's That's like over, so cool. I think it's like 200 something species we have here, but yeah, it's fun. You're like, oh, I've never seen that bird before. And you get in your little app and you go, bink, I saw it. And I do my count. I so love yeah. I love it. It's fun. Now, like I just talk about snow geese are vegetarians. So they eat a whole wide range of, of plants, uh, grass, uh, shrubs, willows, and they eat almost all the p- parts of the plant, the roots, uh, the, the stems, seeds uh, that, you know, they're pretty voracious when it comes to eating. And then, like we said, during migration, they will stop and eat some grain or, you know, some parts of young stems off farm crops, uh, even berries and things like that. So definitely, a you know, a hungry bird. I mean, it's big and it's got to fly oh, pretty yeah. far. Well, and, and their time budgets do vary depending on where they're flying. Mm-hmm. So in the wintertime, they'll feed anywhere from two to seven hours per day. But in the spring, they'll feed up to 12 hours per day. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. a lot, right? And when it comes to feeding behavior, one of the ways that snow geese are different than Canadian geese is that they are much more destructive, for lack of better terms. They, like Chris mentioned, they, they'll they take out the whole plant um, mm-hmm. and even the roots, where the Canadian geese are a little bit more polite, which that makes sense, actually. <laughs> it does. We love our <laughs> they just They just clip off a little bit of the, yeah. uh, the vegetation and then mm-hmm. move on their way so that they leave the plants intact. Uh, with the snow geese, yeah, a little bit more. But I, I would still say Canadian geese aren't very polite. I've seen all the stories <laughs> well, of Canadian when it geese. Co- I was say, when it people. comes to defecation, yeah, or, yeah, or chasing people, yeah, it's so funny. Oh, I uh, love them. I love them. Yeah. But especially when they're fattening up for their spring migration, uh, they do need to eat a lot uh, because food moves through their digestive tract pretty quickly um, with an hour or two. And so. On a good day, they can make anywhere from like five to fifteen feces piles per hour. So wow, that, yeah. that's a and high fiber diet, right? Uh, I need to try it myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are some of the other behaviors of of snow geese? Well, Chris, as we alluded to in nutrition, their main activities are basically feeding and resting, and they're often observed standing on one foot. 
uh, while they are forging or just standing around. And when they truly are sleeping, they will actually sit down and rest. And they're a very social animal, right? Uh, you don't, you're not going to see a snow goose flying by itself typically. When they are in these flocks, they can form anywhere to a couple dozen geese up to several hundred or thousand, depending on where they're foraging and roosting. And because they're such social birds, they're, they're, they communicate to each other a lot, which, which is one of the reasons why they have been labeled the most vocal of all the waterfowl. Uh, but yeah, they're going to help each other out. And so if they are flying around or walking around foraging and they see a predator, they are going to let out an alarm call to all of their buddies and help get them out of the way. So there's definitely benefits of being in a large social snow geese flock. But besides a honk that Chris and I opened up mm -hmm. with in the beginning of the podcast, they make several different sounds. Um, they make higher pitched whistles. They can make cries, high pitched quacks, and they even can make a distant call to their flock that sounds like uh, hounds almost mm. barking. <laughs> Several different calls depending on if they're in flight or if they're foraging or if they're a family feeding the young So, or if there's an intruder. So they're not a shy bird, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And then reproduction, that was kind of interesting when they, you know, getting up in the Arctic and raising their goslings. Oh, good word. Yes. Uh, a female snow goose is called a goose, um, while a gander is typically used to describe a male snow goose. What's incredible about snow geese is that they are extremely monogamous and they'll form very, very long-term pair bonds and breed with the same mate season after season after season. And then once male and female snow geese pair up, whether it's the first time or their 15th time together, uh, the female will choose the nest site because we all know that she has better taste. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And often it's usually the same area uh, that they were in the year before. And nesting is going to take place in June. And the nest is usually going to be hidden a little bit in vegetation with grass and maybe some willows and within small rocks or um, shrubs from different bushes. And the female snow goose is the main incubator of the eggs. And she can spend anywhere from 20 to 22 hours a day on the nest. But the male snow goose is a good dad and he will protect and defend the female and the nest site against any predators or any other snow geese that may be being a busybody or just hanging out there and they shouldn't. And the female snow goose will sit on her eggs for about 23 to 25 days. And Chris, what I found super fascinating about the gosling or the offspring of the snow geese is because they are born in the Arctic tundra. Now, granted, it's in the springtime, so mm. it's not like super cold, but still yeah. it's cold, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cold. Uh, they are born very, very well developed. And so when they hatch... Their eyes are open, which that's different than other species of birds. And when they're born, they have so many feathers or this down, this warm down, that you can tell if they're going to be one of the white colored morphs or mm. the blue or black covered, 
colored morphs. Mm -hmm. So they have a fair amount of plumage or feathers on them when they're born. And of course, the mother snow goose is still there helping keep them warm. But usually within two to three days, the goslings can maintain their own body temperature in that cold weather. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they grow really quickly. Um, Males will grow faster than females. It's not too shocking. Uh, And they will fledge around 48 days. But what's super crazy to me, Chris, is after they're about three weeks old or so, and they're still getting a lot of parental care from both mom and dad snow goose, uh, as far as helping them stay warm, protecting them from predators and feeding them. But by about three to four weeks, uh, they haven't fledged the nest yet, but they've been documented to walk over 50 miles to an area that's better for brooding and then uh, for helping the goslings fledge. So they're just a very well-developed, ready-to-go little gosling, and darling is all get-out. And the parents really help get them there, for sure. Um, Oh, they're great parents. I remember watching, you know, the canal uh, right behind Pip's house, and I I would – it's funny when they swim, you have one parent up front, all of them in single file behind mom or dad, and then one parent behind. I think it's usually the dad. Maybe the dad was behind, but, like, protecting them. Mm-hmm. And they're going back and forth. And then I also remember watching the swans, the baby, you know, swans as they grew and then taking training flights with their parents mm-hmm. and watching a swan take off is hilarious. If you've never seen <laughs> it's it, a lot oh, of momentum. It, it is. It's hilarious. Mm-hmm. It's but, like, it's almost like slow motion. Yeah. Yeah. But it was amazing to watch them take these training flights. Like you knew that's what they were doing mm-hmm. because they would just be flying around the lake and then they'd come land back in the canal. Is amazing. Right. Birds are awesome. And uh, then they have this social behavior too. So when it's time, September, October, even in November, to fly south for their wintering grounds, they, you know, they stick with the group and they learn mm-hmm. and they fly in the mm-hmm. back of the V formation and they just they stick it out and they're learning, 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 learning. And snow geese usually don't reach maturity till about two years. And that's when they'll probably start pairing up in a monogamous relationship that they'll have for the rest of their life with another snow goose. And they'll typically breed then that following year. So on their, on the, on the third year uh, that they come to the Arctic. So just really cool behavior and uh, just fascinating for, I just have so many questions about birds. They're like, how do they do this? How does their phys- physiology allow this? And what are the benefits of this? And how do they evolve to know to fly in a V formation, which for the record, we like humans um, that fly in the Air Force. Like that's like a known yeah. way that they'll fly in the V in the V yeah, formation. The v formation. Yep. Yep. And Learned we, it from so birds. We, we yep. stole that from them. Right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Know? Well, you'll have to get over. You can either go up to the Carolinas and see them, or get over to Texas and Louisiana and the coast. Well, we are and, going to Boston soon to see family, yeah. and so who knows? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe yeah, I'll yeah. See some yeah. this winter, or I'll be listening for them now that I know all of their calls. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like we said, the great conservation success story, least concerned with snow geese estimates about 15 million today. So they've grown rapidly. Yeah. Now they're still federally protected. So that's good. And hunting is managed. So yes, very much so. It's very much managed. So before we get to uh, the conservation organization of the week, I, I do want to give a conservation tip. 
and I was guilty of this. And, you know, Pip and I would always go and, and feed the geese. And we tended to feed bread because we had some leftover bread and, and we didn't feed loads of it, but enough. And that is wrong. You should not be feeding ducks and geese bread, uh, crackers, chips, things like that, because it fills them up and they're not getting the nutrients they need. So if you do want to feed ducks and geese, wild ones, you can feed things like chopping up some greens. So again, these are vegetarian. So things like collards or kale, I read, are good for them. Dandelions, you can, as long as they haven't been treated with pesticide. You can get mealworms or frozen crickets. So those you can also feed to geese or ducks. But also stuff like birdseed, corn. We did you know, switch it up in some cracked corn. Uh, vegetable peels. You can feed them grapes, but chop them up very small so they don't choke on it. Uh, barley, oats, I think I said that. So some of those things that you can feed them, just resist the temptation to feed them bread. I, I, I've I done it before. And so anytime I, I'm going to take the boys out to feed the ducks or all the Canadian geese here in New Zealand, you know, we're going to get some, some greens and feed them that. Conservation Organization of the Week. Well, we have to give a big shout out to the National Audubon Society. They can be found at www audubon.org. That's A-U-D-U-B-O-N. It's one of the oldest conservation nonprofits in North America, protecting birds. Uh, And it not only protects the birds, but it protects where they live. And they do this using education, advocacy, and of course, science. So Mm -hmm. their website's fantastic. Following them on any social media platform will just brighten up your feed full of color and flavor and fun facts because, I mean, there's just so many birds out there that we that we can't cover them all. Uh, and uh, the Audubon Society is doing a great job helping conserve not only wetland species of birds, but several others like the songbirds that are in desperate need of our attention. Yep, so absolutely. Yeah, check them out for sure. And they also have a, a good app you can get. They have an Audubon Bird Guide app. I mean, I love the Cornell one. I, I cannot say that enough. eBird and then the Merlin Bird ID. I use those every time I go birding uh, all the time. You can download certain regions of the world, the bird packs, and then they have a bunch on there, the calls. I play the calls to, to you know, like the Kingfisher call and the Kingfishers like respond back. It's awesome. It's just fun. It's fun. So go outside. Stay warm, but <laughs> go outside this holiday season, start looking in those trees, look up, observe those those animals flying above us and, and really appreciate them as they honk away the snow goose. But yeah, well, and send us some photos. We'll mm-hmm. we'll put them on our social media accounts yeah. and um, or join us on our Facebook All Creatures podcast group. Mm-hmm. Uh, we share a lot of fun stories in there and I would love to see any bird pictures for sure. Yes. Absolutely. Well, happy holidays, everybody. Be safe. Have fun. Hopefully uh, you can see your family and friends this holiday season. Uh, But for me and Angie, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being conservation heroes. Uh, Take care. Thank you, everyone. Happy holiday season.